Well, I am excited about uh, this morning. I get to have the privilege of having a dear friend of mine come and preach to you here this morning. So I have Pastor Philip Thompson and his wife, Tammy. You can come up, Pastor Phil. And so his, um, him and his wife, Tammy, are here from Wapaka, Wisconsin. And so we were watching the Green Bay game last night, and uh, it was not the ending that I'm sure he was hoping for. But um, I've been knowing Pastor Philip since 2017, and I got invited to a video chat uh, with some other brothers that uh, some of them I'd never met. I only met one of them, uh, Pastor Matt Bell. Do you remember Pastor Matt Bell when he came to, to preach here? So he's a part of our friend group. There's seven of us total. So I've had Pastor Chad Hayes come and preach, Pastor Matt Bell, and now Pastor Philip. And this group of brothers have been a lifeline for me personally as a pastor as I'm entering my fourth year, completing my fourth year as a senior pastor here. And so Pastor Philip has been a special blessing to me. He has been the pastor at Victory Church in Wapaka for 26 years, yep. been in pastoral ministry for 30 years. And my wife and I took a trip last year in March, spent seven days there and wore them out. I, uh, we just, you know, we just asked all kinds of questions about pastoral ministry and they've been further along the road than us. And Pastor Philip has a, has a great, a great heart, uh, full of wisdom of God's word. And so he's just a special friend. They're special friends. We love them dearly. And I am honored to be able to have him share God's word with you. So would you welcome Pastor Philip? My pleasure. Among our group, I want you to know Brother Ben is the resident theologian. So we may have some years of experience, I may have some years of experience on the pastoral side of things, but whenever we start talking about Scripture and about biblical principles, he just has us beat. You have an incredible pastor. So he came up to Wisconsin, and uh, we are called to the frozen chosen. That's who God's called us to. We have popsicles up there. They literally come in and thaw at our church. And so uh, yesterday you saw the uh, Green Bay Packers and the cold that was there. They're, they're diehard fans. They'll go out even if it's 20 below zero. In fact, a couple of days at our house, a couple of days ago it was 20 below zero. And then with the wind chill factor even lower than that. And so uh, we, we love it. We love it up there. Uh, it's a dairy community. So when we came here after showing Brother Ben all of our all of our Wisconsin cuisine. He started showing me some of the Louisiana cuisine. And my prayer is that at the marriage supper of the lamb, there's some Cajun food there. Just let me bring some cheese. In fact, gumbo uh, was served to us just the other night. Best gumbo I have ever had. I was embarrassed to ask for more and more and more. And they say you are what you eat. So I said to my wife, if we get a dog, I'm going to call it Fido. That's just the way you got to call a dog. And Started saying to my wife, bring yourself over here. She says, why do you start talking that way? I said, I've been eating some of the Cajun food down here. So all I ask is that let me bring some of my cheese to the Merry Supper of the Lamb and we'll have a full, full dietary course. It's going to be great in heaven. Amen? In fact, I kept saying to Brother Ben, if the temperature drops any further, I'm going to be able to teach him how to ice fish. Up here, we didn't really bring the cold with us, but it seems to have followed us. We were hoping to get some of the sun that uh, comes from from the southern states, but still, it was still warmer here than it was there. So this morning, I want to preach on the subject, touching Jesus, touching Jesus. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, there seems to be 
two portrayals of Jesus. The Jesus that will pass you by unless you call out to him and invite him into your realm. And the Jesus that knows that there's a need and walks right up to you. We have the story of Zacchaeus who climbed up into a sycamore tree and Jesus went straight to that sycamore tree and said, Zacchaeus, tonight I'm going to have supper with you. Jesus went to Zacchaeus and there was a blind man that was standing on the side of the road and Jesus put mud in his eyes and sent him to the pool of Shalom to wash. Jesus walked up to him. And there was a lame man who could not get into the pool after the angel had stirred the waters and Jesus came to him. And we see throughout the Gospels that there is this Jesus that walks up to people who is in need and calls them into the supply of the need that they have. But there's this second portrayal of Jesus throughout the Gospels where if you don't do your effort, the Bible says that when Jesus was walking on the water, he would have passed them by, except that they cried out to him. We don't know why God chooses sometimes to make us call out to him and other times he makes his effort to come to us. But we do see both of these portrayals in the gospel of Jesus Christ So this morning, I want to touch the subject of touching Jesus. How do we touch Jesus? Can it be done? So if you bow your heads before I open up the scriptures, let's pray. Father, I pray that while there is a culture that is Wisconsinite, and there's a beautiful culture that is Louisianan, and there's cultures around the world, my aspiration with my message this morning is to convey that there is a culture of the kingdom and that this is what needs to live in us, not just here in church, but in our homes and everywhere we go, that as we are called Christians, this culture that I'm going to be talking about, this culture that empowers us, enables us to touch Jesus, that that would be prevalent in us. So I pray, open my mouth, just as you do, Brother Ben, that I might speak your word, and Lord, help me to preach the word with the authority that you give through the word, and Lord, that above all, you would be exalted through the teaching of the word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everybody says, amen. If you have your Bibles, open with me to the gospel of Mark. I apologize for my coughing here. Open your passage, your Bible up to Mark chapter 5, verse 24 through 34, and let me read to you this passage and give you a little bit of the backdrop. Jesus is visiting the people, healing the people. He decides to get on a boat, go to the other side of the Jordan. And he arrives on the other side and the crowds have walked all the way around him. And there's a man by the name of Jairus who has a daughter and the daughter is ill to the point of death. So Jairus hears about Jesus and he makes a straight track to where Jesus is, falls down at Jesus' feet And begins to worship him. And he pleads with Jesus, my daughter is sick. She's to the point of death. Will you come? Just lay your hand on her and I know that she will be made well. Jesus agrees. So we pick up the passage, Mark chapter 5 verse 24. It says, Jesus went with him. And all the people followed, crowding around him. And a woman in the crowd had suffered. Everybody say suffered. Suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. And she had suffered, say suffered again, a great deal from many doctors. And over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had not gotten better. And in fact, 
she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched, say touched, his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch, again say that word, touched his robe, I will be healed immediately. The bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. And Jesus, at once, that healing power had gone out from him. The King James says virtue. The moment that the woman touched the hem of his garment, virtue, the Bible says, flowed out. This dunamis, this power from on high, flowed out from him. And virtue had gone out from him. So he turned around. In the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? And his disciples said to him, Lord, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And she said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Now let me pick up the story. As soon as Jesus has this dialogue with this woman with the issue of blood, some people came to tell Jairus that there's no need to bother the master anymore. The daughter had died. Jesus turns to Jairus and stills his emotions and says, don't doubt but rather fear. And they continue on to Jairus' house. And as they draw near, I can just imagine this, that they can hear the mourners and the musicians that in the Jewish culture were hired to somehow dramatize and to carry on at the passing of a person. If you do much study on this, it's an interesting dynamic that the Jewish people believed in hiring mourners to mourn the passing of somebody, and they were loud. And they expressed themselves with, with, with music and other things. And maybe the Jews figured that because of the scriptures in the Old Testament that God is moved by the infirmities, moved by the emotions, moved by the passions of people, that they have gotten off of track of genuine emotions being expressed to the Lord, that they now had been hired to do people, which was really, to a great extent, not what Christ ever intended. So Jesus approaches the building where this girl is, and he he says to them, get out of here, for the girl is not dead, but she simply sleeps. And the morning is turned to jeers, and they begin to make fun of mock Jesus for the things that he had said. And Jesus takes Peter, James, and John into the house where the girl was, and he simply raises the girl from the dead. Now, I want to talk to you today about this idea of, now that Jesus has died and was buried and rose again, <clears throat> is there opportunity for us to touch Jesus? We don't see him in the flesh. We don't have the opportunity that this woman had or that Jairus had to approach Jesus to kneel down before him in the flesh. But can we, can we today, hapotomai, this Greek word, can we touch him? And while we can't physically touch him, according to this Greek word 680, this, this hapotime, which the woman did, the question that has to be asked and answered is, can Jesus be touched today? And if so, how? And the answer to that question is, we can touch him, hear me, by the feelings of our infirmities. There is something about our feelings that touches the heart of God. 
I'm going to explain that a little bit today. Let's read out of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. In the New Living Translation, it says this high priest, Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, he understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. I love the King James Version of this. The reason I love this particular passage in the King James is because in the New Testament, there's over 101 double negatives in the Greek. In the Greek language, there's double negatives. And in that culture, it's intended to create emphasis. So let me read to you the double negative as that's translated from the Greek into our English language. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, For we have not, that's a negative, <clears throat> a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. It's intended to make an emphasis. Our God, our Christ, our high priest, he can be touched by the feelings of our infirmities. This double negative, this this author of the book of Hebrews intentionally puts this in to make an emphasis that we can today. It's not the same Greek word as a woman touching the hem of Jesus' garment. This is a different Greek word. It's sympathes, which comes into the English language as sympathy. It is a touching force that Christ himself sympathizes with us. He connects with us in the feelings of our infirmities. And it goes on to say, but was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. So let us therefore, the command is there, let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. I have a very simple two-point sermon today. Number one, Jesus, our high priest, he is touched by the feelings of our infirmities. There is something that happens when the inner part of man just begins to feel the need to cry out to God, that God somehow connects to us in a very supernatural way. When we bring the feelings of our infirmities to Jesus, it draws his virtue, it draws his dunamis power towards us. This is what the author of the book of Hebrews had grown to understand. Let's give some examples of this. Stephen, the apostle, he's boldly stood in front of the Sanhedrin proclaiming that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He does not recant on this. And in the book of Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 56, we read the story. It says, and the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, they shook their fists at him. Can you imagine that? In rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus not sitting but standing, as if Jesus, seeing the pain that Stephen was about to go through, Jesus stands and possibly extending his hand towards Stephen And Stephen probably took comfort upon this very moment as the people gathered around him, picking up the stones and about to throw the stones at him. Stephen begins to see the heavens open up and he sees Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hands. And he told them, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And I can just imagine that in that moment of perhaps solace looking into Christ, 
Stephen is passed into eternity as the first rock must have hit him, causing there to be a deadly blow to his physical body. There's something about when we begin to express the feelings of our infirmities to Christ, that Christ draws near. It seems to be one of these things that God says, because I suffered, because I felt pain, this is what I wish, that inhumanity would forever end. And when we get to heaven, one of the things that we're told will happen, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. This is what Christ died on the cross for. But yet, while we are still here in our temporal bodies, the inner man can cry out to God. And while he may not always instantly heal the illnesses that are within us, he sympathizes with the feelings that we carry about the things that are happening around us. Paul in 2 Timothy, he's in prison, he's writing the prison epistles, and he writes to Timothy saying the following things in 2 Timothy four sixteen and 17. The first time that I was brought before the judge, he says, no one came with me. Everyone abandoned me. He says, may it not be counted against them. He says, that's not the point. He says, this is the real point I want you to know, that even though nobody was with me, but the Lord, but the Lord stood with me and gave me strength so that I might preach the good news in its entirety for all the Gentiles to hear. And he rescued me from the certain death. There is something that happens when we go to Christ with the feelings of our infirmities, the pressures that we're feeling that Jesus Christ touches us, ministers to us. King David likewise, in Psalms chapter 50, verse 15, King David learned to call on the Lord when he was in trouble. It says in 50, 15 Psalms, and call upon me in the days of trouble and I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. And Peter, the same thing. So here we find Stephen and Paul and Peter and David Peter saying the same thing, casting all your cares upon him, he cares for you. There was a young man up in Wisconsin, had an opportunity to talk to him. We support, similar to the way your church is in, involved in a recovery program, and we have what is called Compassion House up there in Wisconsin, and we support that. And from time to time, I get opportunities to sit down and just talk to some of the folks that have gone through the program and we're, we're encouraging them, you know, the men and the women that go through the program to just stay the course, keep walking, maturing with Christ. And as I was sitting there talking to this young man, he told me his story. He says that he grew up in church. His, his parents would take him Sundays, almost every Sunday to church. And he remembers the Sunday school program and he remembers the VBS and he remembers going to Bible camps. And he says in his freshman and his sophomore year, he was very active in the youth program. And somehow, some way in school, there was a changing in his junior year where he just decided that he wanted to become more popular than the Christian kids. And so he tied in with a group of kids that began to show him some ill behaviors. And he, he began to go down this path. And the parents did everything they could. They, everything from tough love to grounding him, taking away the things that he enjoyed, restricting everything they could. And, and they just could not seem to capture their son, and, and he says that, that he feels bad, but he, he basically when he turned 18, he left his home, and he started going from couch to couch, living with his friends, and, and, and the drug culture that he was engaged in and the lifestyle that he was engaged in, he says, I felt like I was digging a pit for myself, and the pit kept going deeper and deeper and deeper. And he says, you know, they say that you can't really recover until you hit bottom. And he says, everybody has a different bottom. Everybody has a different depth of how, how low they will go before they finally recognize that this is absolute bottom. And he says, 
I would come out of the culture and I would get somehow some help. And within a matter of weeks, I'd go back to it and came back out. And every time I was digging a deeper and deeper and deeper hole for me. And he knew, he knew about the prodigal son, the story. And he, he remembered that that was one of his favorite stories when he was in high school, how the child had asked the father for his inheritance and the child had taken it to a distant land and he had squandered it in wanting living. And that that one day that the child decided, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back home to my father's house. The prodigal said, I'm going to go home in my father's house. The uh, servants eat so much better and they're living so much better. And, and he was satisfying himself here with what the pigs would eat. So he determined that he would go back. And this, this, this young man that I was talking to, he says, I always had in the back of my mind that story. And he says, and it felt to me like the journey back home get farther and farther and further and further away. And, and he knew that when he finally made the decision to go back home, it was going to be a long, long journey to get back to his father's house. And he says, and one day, sure enough, I hit bedrock. I hit like a granite floor. There was nothing left. I, was, I had a borrowed shirt on my back. I had absolutely nothing. I came out of a drunken stupor, and I said to myself, what in the world am I doing here? I absolutely hit bottom. And as he sat there pondering, what am I doing? And it, he says, it must have been hours of just pondering that he finally made the decision, I'm going to go back to my father's house. And he said he physically got up to his feet. At the same time, the internal part of him was getting up and His internal man had made the decision, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to go back to my parents' house, and I'm going to go back to the church, and I'm going to begin to serve the Lord. And once he made that decision, he physically turned around. And as he turned around emotionally, he says, I saw in my spirit Jesus 10 inches in front of me. And it was such a comforting feeling. I I had thought that I was going to have to walk this long journey all by myself back to the Father's house And he says, I realized all along Jesus was right there waiting for me to make the 180. And from that point and on, yes, give the Lord a hand clap. And he says, and from that point and on, I felt the presence of God. It's as if he identified with my infirmities. And he walked me back and he he gives a story. It took years for his parents to trust him again. It took years for the church to really put him back into some type of a a respectful role within the church, he says, but it was worth it all because the whole time I felt that God could identify with the feelings of my infirmities. So the first thing I want you to know is that we can touch Jesus with the feelings of our infirmities because the book of Hebrews, it says so. For we have not a high priest who cannot be, but rather he can be touched by the feelings of our infirmities, which brings me to the second point today. And it's only a two-part sermon that Jesus is touched when we identify ourselves with his cross. There is something about the suffering of the cross of Christ that when you and I choose to take up the cross and follow Jesus, that he is right there. He is right there, 10 inches away from us, walking with us, comforting us. Galatians chapter 2 Verse 20, Paul says this, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's very present, a very present help in the time of need. So he says, so I live in this earthly body, but I'm trusting in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This idea that when I take on the cross and I follow Christ, 
something inside of me wells up and it comes alive in Christ Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, it says we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy that awaited him, think about that, because of the joy that awaited him, because of the future that's going to take place, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. And that tells us something, that when we identify ourselves with the cross of Jesus Christ, He not only fills us with his presence, he encourages us to press on. But knowing that the day is going to come when the trumpet will sound, those who are dead in Christ will rise first, and those of us who are are alive will be caught up with him in the air. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Then the disciples said to Jesus, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. I was pastoring in San Antonio 25 years ago. This was before I moved to the frozen chosen people in Wisconsin. And there was a lady and her husband that were part of our church, very active in our church. And one day she came to the office and she was distraught. She began to tell the story. She says, Pastor, I just found out that my husband has been unfaithful to me. He's a bus driver, and his job is to go and pick up the bus from the bus barn early in the morning. He drives the VIA bus system in San Antonio, and he would drive from the bus barn to where his route began. And every morning, there was this one stop that he would make, and uh, there was a lady there that, that would get on the bus, and this lady would always sit right behind him, and they would talk. And over the course of time, a friendship developed, and at some point, the conversation crossed the line, and it emerged into something that it just certainly should not be. And, and she goes on to say, and giving some of the details of this and, and how this had been carrying on for some time, and she kept interjecting things like, how could a woman not know? How, how could I not know that this has been going on? And if you're a woman and you can kind of feel the things that she's feeling, this, this weightiness that she was feeling. And so as, as she found out, because it was a story that didn't quite line up and it all came out, and so she, she challenged her husband and Sure enough, it all came out. So she says, what do you intend to do about it? And he says, it's been working fine for several years. In other words, he intended to keep both relationships. And she was devastated by this. She says, how can you do this? And so for about an hour, hour and a half, she's just just grieving this. And what about the kids? And on one hand, I made a commitment at the altar. And on the other hand, and so just back and forth. And she's really looking to the pastor to help her make a decision. What do I do? What do I do? And maybe you can feel the weight and the heaviness when these types of things happen. And she was just griefed. She she was just, the feelings of her infirmities were great. And so the pastor, after that she had calmed down and was actually ready to hear what the pastor had to say, the pastor said, there are two thoughts I have, two choices that you can take. There seems to be a biblical basis for you to separate and The D word obviously came into the conversation. But he says, I want to propose something else. Jesus was wronged. Jesus was wronged. Falsely accused, cheated against in a way. Judas Iscariot betrayed him with the kiss. And he says, you know, you have a choice. You can. You have the grounds, it seems. But there's this other choice that you could take up your cross 
and follow Christ and see what Christ will do in this relationship. She got somewhat upset at the pastor. How could you even suggest that? How could I, how could I even allow that? I, how can I just not? Well, she eventually went home and, and all of the emotions, this, this being caught between these two truths. On one hand, I can divorce. On the other hand, I could take up the cross. And finally, just in the exhaustion of these two choices, she fell to her knees in her home and she says, Jesus, I don't know what to do. But I want to take up my cross and follow you. And she says this. A week later, she came and gave testimony at the church. She says immediately when she had made that decision, I will take up my cross and follow Jesus. She says, I heard for the first time in my life, I've been a Christian my whole life, but I heard for the first time a voice inside of me that says, my daughter, my love for you is sufficient. And every daddy wound that she had had, every hurt that every man had ever caused her, from the playground experiences in junior high all the way through, and even this great betrayal of her husband, it all melted away when she felt Jesus saying those words to her. Now, I'd like to tell you that if you take up your cross and follow Jesus, that he's going to speak to you the same way he did to her, but I don't know that that's true. I don't know why Christ sometimes requires you to come to him and Other times he comes to you in the time of need. What I do know is this, is that there are two cultures that must live on. It's not the Wisconsin culture. It's not the Louisiana culture. It is the Christian culture. Instead of us taking our phone and as soon as we feel hurt, as soon as we feel betrayed, as soon as we, whatever it may be, instead of texting on our preferred app to all the world that's around us about our hurts and our aches and our pains, What if we go back to that original Christian culture? I have a high priest that is touched by the feelings of my infirmities. And that if ever I needed a touch from God, it is now. And even though I have been wronged, I'm going to take up my cross and I'm going to follow him. And I'm here to tell you, I I just believe that Jesus somehow just fills us with his presence in such a supernatural way that it gives us the courage to press on. In Matthew chapter 14 and verse 36, I want you to notice what happens. The woman that we just read about in the gospel of Mark reached up to touch the hem of Jesus's garment. She was healed. And shortly after that, everyone began to beg Jesus. This is what it says in Matthew 14, 36. She started a movement. She didn't realize it. It says they begged him to let the sick touch at least the fringe of his robe. And all who touched him were healed. Well, we can't touch the hem of his garment, not not today. He's not here in the present form, physical form, but he is here in spirit and in truth. What if we were to create a culture in these four walls, in our own homes, in our own work environments, where even if I'm wronged, I will always assume Not malice, but ignorance. They just don't know that they did this to me. They just don't know that they hurt me with their words. Jesus Christ, he can be touched today, so we need to draw near to him by taking up our cross, by following him and communicating the feelings of our heart to the Lord and virtue, dunamis, will fall upon us because the Lord, who is our high priest, says that he can be touched by the feelings of our infirmities. I want to close with this story. I'm a little bit of a history buff, and uh, if you're my age, you will know about the Carol Burnett Show. How many of y'all have Carol Burnett? Yes. 
<clears throat> Carol Burnett had a show, and she was one of the few women in Hollywood that had her own show. Her and Lucille Ball were the two primary daytime show who also had live audiences in their studios. And one day, um, there was this actor that she had just hired by the name of uh, Harvey Corman. He's a tall guy standing right next to, a, right next to Carol Burnett. And he was somewhat passive-aggressive. So he would often come in, and he wasn't in a good mood, and he would go to his dressing room, and sometimes he would say snooty things to some of the other actors. And there were other actors like Vicki Lawrence and Lyle Wagner and Tim Conway, and even sometimes Dick Van Dyke. <clears throat> and there was one time that uh, Harvey Corman said something to one of the other guests, and he was apparently in a bad mood, and so Carol Burnett came to his dressing room and began to address this with her, him, and, and he was going to have this. He, he, he said basically to her, it's none of your business what's going on in my private life, and got up and escorted her to the door of his dressing room. So she went back to her own dressing room and got the courage from observing some of the other actresses in, in, in their leading roles, and she picked up the phone and called the agent and said to the agent, you call Harvey and let him know he no longer has a job here. And as you can imagine, Harvey quickly came and met her, and there was this dialogue. And Carol Burnett says, we have a duty here. Our job here on this show, we are a comedy act. There are people who are heavy laden, they're burdened, and they're watching us on TV, and people pay money to come and be part of the viewing audience. And we have to be at the top of our game. And so she says to Harvey, she says, you, you, you take the wind out of our sail, you your, your passive-aggressive behavior here in the studio, it just, it just puts everybody on edge, and I, I can't have it, not when we have something to do. And she says, if, you, if you're going to keep your job here, this is what I want. I want you to, as soon as you walk into this door, I want you to be whistling or humming. I want you to be cutting up jokes. I want you to greet everybody nicely. And Harvey did that. He got on board with the plan and the vision that was taking place. And that's why from 1967 to 1978, 279 shows, the longest show running in the course of American TV history, 11 seasons. And everybody around says that everybody being on board is what caused the show to be a success. Now, I'm talking about culture. The cultural idea that Jesus can be touched. What if here at Living Word and Victory Church Wapaka and every other church had this cultural attitude? We, the believers of Jesus Christ, believe that our Lord and Savior identifies with the feelings of our infirmities when we take up our cross and follow him when we bring our needs to him, he identifies with us and we serve a God who is very present in our time of needs. And what if that became the culture that began to permeate? We're going to be wronged in our church, my church. We're going to be wronged. People will say things. People will be in a rush to do things. And sometimes we feel it. But if we could take on this attitude, oh Christ, I need you now. I bring the feelings of my infirmities to you. I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to love my brother. I'm going to keep pressing in. If we let that become the culture, I'm here to tell you, 
thousands of lives will be changed because the world out there is desperately needing a group of people who will play the role in this cast. Jesus Christ can identify with the feelings of our infirmities. And not one person, neither the person at the deepest depths of the addictions to the betrayals in marriage and firings at jobs and on and on it goes. If the culture can be that culture, I'll take up my cross and follow. Will you bow your heads with me today? And I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm actually asking you to put your hand on your shoulder. Put your hand on your shoulder, whichever shoulder of your choice. And I want you to commit yourself to let that shoulder become the shoulder that the cross of Christ will bear. That when you are wronged, your first reaction will be, Lord, show me to take up your cross. I need to hear from you. So, Father, as we lay our hands on our shoulders here this morning, let this shoulder be broad enough to carry the weight. And, Lord, when I cannot carry it anymore, you saw fit to have Simon the Cyrene help with the carrying of the cross, bring men and women of faith alongside that can help me carry the cross, particularly the very burdensome ones. Lord, we know that there's going to be hurts in our family relationships, in our work relationships, in the culture that we live in. But you, our high priest, identify with the feelings of our infirmities. So we will come to you, take up our cross, and we believe, Lord, that this will be the culture that you intend for us to follow. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And everybody says, amen. Well, Brother Ben. I hope today for lunch we're going to have some type of Cajun food. I was thinking, I Mex- I was, I was thinking Mexican. Well, well, that'll work too. Can y'all pray for Pastor Philip yeah. with me? Let's just pray a blessing over Pastor Philip for bringing that incredible word to us. God, I thank you for your word, Lord. We receive it today. God, may we be a people, Lord, that are quick to open our hearts, to, to open our hearts to your touch. Lord, I pray that there, that there are those here today, Lord, you are, that are overwhelmed with their infirmities and their feelings and their struggles, that they would come to you. Lord, help us to be a church, Lord, that has a culture that takes up the cross, responds with love and compassion, and support for one another, that we're quick to forgive and to love, to bring healing. God, thank you for Pastor Phil, for his willingness to come and share and speak from his heart and to bless us as a congregation. I pray that you would multiply the blessings back to him and his wife Tammy, his family, to their church, to Victory Church. Pray for continued, multiplied impact into their, their community, into the different campuses that they have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Love Thank you. Thank you, congregation. Yes. Y'all are great people. See you next week. <laughs>